you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs. Welcome to the Great America Show. And we begin this episode, as usual, with a warm welcome. Welcome to the big show and a bit of an update on what's happening in this great country of ours. And occasionally, we include a look beyond our borders to other countries, countries that are trying hard to get a mention on this Great America show. It's a problem. There are dozens trying to catch our attention with their antics and absurdities. The season of intimidation against the Republican justices on the Supreme Court is underway in this country. Protests at churches this past Sunday, protest rallies as well, outside the homes of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Chief Justice John Roberts. And Speaker Pelosi couldn't contain her joy at the sight of leftist mobs and protests and demonstrators brimming over with what Pelosi called righteous anger. And of course, there was a firebombing of an anti-abortion clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, and a three-day late White House admonishment against violence and intimidation. And so it goes in 21st century Joe Biden's America. The White House made no such admonitions against violence against Trump supporters by the Capitol and D.C. police departments and FBI back on January 6th. The Dems organized a committee of the same name to persecute almost a thousand of our fellow citizens who were part of a larger Trump rally that day and who were caught up in crowds who surrounded the Capitol and some of whom entered the building and were charged with serious crimes. The vast majority did nothing, but found themselves ensnared by the Marxist left Dems campaign of terror and intimidation of Trump supporters, including our guest today. He is Brandon Strzok, and his life, like hundreds of others, changed on January 6th. Brandon, it's a delight to have you with us here on The Great America Show. I'd I'd like to begin, if, if we may... Uh, with your mindset, you're in Washington for the Trump rally. You're a former Democrat uh, who ha- is an activist, and you have driven uh, this uh, this organization, uh, Walk Away, uh, which is doing terrific work, bringing Democrats to the Republican Party, to MAGA. Uh, give us uh, your, your emotions, your mindset, and your motivation as you we're headed to to Washington uh, to uh, to the Capitol uh, eventually on that weekend. Well, so after the election in November of 2020, I think like most people in this country, I went to bed on election night thinking that uh, Donald Trump uh, had a, a clear victory, and waking up the next day and scratching my head and my eyes bulging out and being a little bit confused about what had transpired during the night. And then the the following days, immediately after the election, that situation just became more and more bizarre. So I actually joined a number of conservative activists uh, who have large followings and went to swing states around the country and held First Amendment protected rallies, basically just saying that we, the people, would like to see a forensic audit of this vote because something feels very fishy and feels very wrong. And there were a number of reports coming in about all different types of abnormalities uh, with some of these ballots and the way that the ballots were handled. And uh, so that had gone on for me throughout the month of November and the month of December. And as we were approaching early January, I had gotten an offer to come to Washington, D.C. and speak at the Capitol on January 6th at another event. This uh, the plan, as it was explained to me, was that there was an event there, there would be an event at the ellipse that President Trump would be speaking at the ellipse. And uh, then there would be a march from the ellipse to the Capitol. And then there would be another event at the Capitol where dozens of people would be speaking, including myself. And to be honest with you, initially, I wasn't sure 
that I really wanted to do it because I had already made a very public proclamation that I was going to be a poll watcher in Georgia for the Senate runoff elections. I had told everybody this for a while and I didn't really want to go back on my word. Uh, not to mention the fact that by the time we'd gotten to early January, internally, I was starting to feel like the election fraud situation was, uh, or, uh, the, the hope of getting a, an audit of this vote. I, I was feeling like it was a little bit hopeless that, I mean, the Democrats were really charging forward with, uh, certification of Joe Biden. And to me, it seemed like the cause was kind of lost, but I ended up kind of you know, having conversations with people in my own life who advised me that, you know, this is something that it could be the last opportunity you have to stand up for president Trump, to stand up for the American voter and just use your voice and let people know that, you know, we all feel like something is wrong with the 2020 election. And so I didn't end up changing my plans and going to Washington DC. And I attended, watched president Trump, speak, you know, there at the ellipse, he very clearly said that he was going to join people at the Capitol and to march peacefully and patriotically uh, to the Capitol, which is exactly what happened. And eventually I, you know, I got on the DC Metro with my security officers and we entered the Capitol uh, approaching the East side. This was around uh, 2 20 PM that I was coming from the DC Metro to the Capitol grounds. Now this whole story has been so badly misreported since the very beginning, uh, which obviously intentionally misreported, but a lot of people don't understand because they weren't there and they haven't gotten good information that the Capitol of course has four sides to the building. And when people think about the, the violence and the struggles with police officers and the, and the things that have become sort of synonymous with all of the, the bad things that happened on January 6th, my knowledge that happened exclusively on the west side of the building. That's where people saw, you know, the, the people shoving through and breaking windows and, and things like that. That was not happening on the east side of the building where I was approaching. As I was entering the grounds, it was very, very calm. People were just want, people were kind of clustered all over the grounds in different groups. They were talking, uh, they were having conversations, and there was a large group of thousands of people collected near the stairs on the east side who were peacefully holding signs, chanting. Uh, some people had karaoke machines and were singing singing songs. But I had gotten messages as I was approaching on my phone from friends and work colleagues who were watching on television telling me that they were hearing on the news that people were going inside the building. And I didn't know exactly what that meant. And I also didn't. And at the same time, I started getting messages from some of the other speakers who were supposed to be speaking that day saying, is our event still happening? We're hearing something's going on at the Capitol. We're hearing there's a disruption. There was confusion. So I thought to myself, either this event is still happening and I'm still speaking, or there's something unusual happening at the Capitol and I want to document that to show it to my followers. And at that point, I began shooting a video. Uh, I would estimate that I started shooting my video about three full blocks away from the Capitol. And I just shot one long continuous video for about 10 minutes. Um, and like I said, as I enter the grounds, there's a few things that are, uh, that, and people, by the way, anyone listening can watch my video for themselves by going to my website, brandonstrock.com. And my last name is spelled S T R A K A.com. Uh, there's a few peculiar things when you watch my video. The first is that as I'm entering the East side Capitol grounds, there are quite literally zero police officers on the grounds. I'm not saying one or five or 10. I'm saying zero police officers on the grounds. There were no barricades, no closed barricades. Everything was open. The sidewalks were open. There were people time was everywhere. This? At what time? This would have been, I would have been approaching at this point, I'd say around 2.30, 2.35, somewhere in that neighborhood. And which side of the Capitol? The east side, east side of the Capitol. Okay. And, and so as, I, oh, go ahead. 
No, I just wanted to 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 get a picture in everyone's mind about where you were at about what time uh, to just you know because many of us watched what was happening uh, without really realizing. I think I'll speak only for myself. Uh, I I'm watching this and I'm thinking, you know, this is uh, this is sort of uh, amazing. Uh, I was talking about the energy of the crowd and everything else, and this is before any uh, anyone had an idea that there was going to be a, a disruption, uh, a, a major trespass, if you will. Uh, right. And, uh, but now, uh, so I mean, that's that was my purpose, and, and just uh, for the audience to understand where we were. Sure. Yeah. And so I'm the the barricades were open. The crowd, thousands of people everywhere. Again, this is just on the east side. And I'm walking towards the steps. I'm still filming, you know, I'm filming the entire time. And as I'm getting near the steps, there's a man in the, that you see in my video standing near the top of the steps. He's got his hat in his hand. And he's shouting down to the people below. They've opened the doors. They're letting us in. We're going in. We're going in. And so I walked up to the top of the stairs. And when I got to the top of the stairs, I found hundreds of people standing up there. There were two large metal doors to the east side of the building that were wide open, completely open. And there were some people in the crowd who looked like they were making their way in, walking in. And the majority of people were just standing there, kind of watching something most people were filming. And so I stood there and I filmed for about eight minutes outside of the Capitol. I never went inside the Capitol, never did go inside that at any point during the day. And, uh, and I never got within, I'd say 35 feet, maybe 30 feet of the open doors. Right. And I stood, I stood there filming for about eight minutes. And after eight minutes, a man came outside, got on a bullhorn and shouted out to the crowd, uh, they've cleared Congress. Everybody went home. Everybody clear out. Everybody clear out. That he was, uh, it, t- as far as I know, this was a protester, not a police officer or any government official that was shouting on the, the, the bullhorn. But as soon as he said that, I immediately turned around and I even told the people behind me, uh, you know, they're saying to clear out, go this way, go this way. And I walked down the stairs. And then I stayed on the outer grounds for about another 20 or 30 minutes and just did in, uh, interviews, street interviews with people. And I, I took about 13 videos doing that. From there, I went back to my hotel room. I, uh, I took the original video that I shot, the one where I'm entering the grounds and going up the stairs and filming the open doors. I uploaded that video to Twitter and basically just told my audience, you know, this is what I saw today at the Capitol. And, uh, and then about an hour after that, I turned on the television and I started to see the footage of what had happened on the West side of the building, the things that I didn't see. And I was really shocked because I couldn't even mentally really justify that this was the same event because the energy that I was seeing was nothing like what I witnessed on the East side. And I instantly became concerned that that people might not be able to dis- make the distinction between what I, where I had been and what I had done and what these people were doing. And I thought, okay, I don't want to come across as though I condone or support anything that I'm seeing. And I don't even know at this point how far this has gone. I was, you know, I'm thinking, how bad was this? I have no idea. So I took my video down and I took down all of the tweets and social media posts I had put out the entire day. Because I just thought I need to find out, you know, how, how far this went and, and what this is. Right. I took it down and I honestly, I didn't think another thing of it. And, uh, and then I flew back to my, to where I live and I kind of moved on with my life thinking that was that. And, um, it was well, far from, far from that. Yeah. Far, far from that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. a couple of things. Did, did you identify the person who said, come on in? Uh, on the uh, at the uh, eastern the east uh, entrance to the Capitol. No idea. I have no idea. Um, there. So the, the man that I was describing appeared to be a protester, um, and it was. It, it seemed pretty clear to me that he was not the person 
who had opened the doors. And from what I understand, these are very high security doors that are nearly, yes. I think it's impossible. They're saying it'd be easier to break open a, a bank vault. So somebody made a decision to open those doors and I don't know how, but no, I, I have no idea who opened the doors. They were, were open there, when I got there. And how many uniform officers were near that Eastern, uh, the East uh, entrance? Okay. So here's what's interesting is, uh, if you watch, so as I'm shooting my video, like I said, there were hundreds of people standing at the top of the stairs and I'm, I'm probably about five ten. So there are people all around me. Some of them are six, one, six, two, maybe taller than that. Uh, uh, many people had flags that were hanging on very you know tall flagpoles that were hanging down. So what I did was I took my arms and I extended them fully above my head. And then I pointed my camera down toward the door so that my camera could capture things that my eyes weren't able to see themselves. And in my video, uh, if you study it, and I mean by study it, I mean if you zoom in, if you pause it, if you look around, you can at times see anywhere from one or two, maybe at some points there are three police officers. Now, in my opinion, they're just standing there. I mean, they're, they're at no point do you see these officers shoving people put, or even saying, get out of here, get out of here. I mean, they're quite literally just standing there in the doorway. But the reason why I'm, I'm explaining this the way that I am is that by the time we got to the point, which, of course, we'll get into where the government is charging me, uh, their version of the story, which I ultimately signed because I took a plea deal and they wrote it, uh, was if you were to read that, you would think that there were. Uh, an entire an entire squadron of police officers who were struggling as hard as they possibly could to keep people out of the building. And in my opinion, that is not at all what my video reflects. And that video did the uh, did the to the prosecutors, the uh, FBI agents, the uh, the judge, did they see that video? Oh yes. So what and, happened was I. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I was just going to say, because, I mean, that's sure evidence, uh, sure proof uh, of the reality at that moment there. That's correct. But the problem here is, and again, I'm just going to state, you know, in my own opinion, mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe that the purpose of any of this is to exercise any actual justice I think that the purpose of all of this is to create a destructive narrative and any way, again, my opinion, what's happening here is that the DOJ is overcharging people hideously, hideously overcharging people to the point of scaring them to death, knowing that they can, you know, essentially guide people into taking a plea deal. And once you, once you make that decision to take the plea deal, because look, let's, let's be honest. The, these are your options. You can, you can go to trial for, uh, these are average everyday, you know, working class people. It could cost any $250,000 or more to go to trial on these charges. You're going to be before a Washington DC judge, a Washington DC jury. These are extremely liberal people. These are extremely anti-Trump people and you're likely going to lose, whether you're innocent or not. I think the majority of people, that's what's in their minds when they're making the decision to take these plea deals. And once you make the decision to take the plea deal, what you're essentially doing is giving the government permission to write the story from A to Z, and you have to sign it. And then that story goes straight to the media. And then that story becomes, I, you know, John Smith went to Washington, D.C. with the intention to disrupt Congress. And when I got there, I saw police officers being attacked by Trump supporters and I cheered them on. And I, it's it's fiction, but they're get, they get to write this fiction and well, it's extremely beneficial to them going into a, a midterm election. And, and I want to get we're going to get further into that. But The Washington Post uh, subsequently it was reporting. The Brandon Straka was yelling, go, go. I think there were two goes, uh, not the usual customary three that you see in movies. Go, go to uh, those who were assaulting the, the Capitol uh, that you had uh, 
uh, been encouraging, if you will, uh, of, a, of a riot you were inciting in your action. Uh, they went to great, it, it, was, it was sort of a peculiar article, and I, I'm, I'm sure you know the article I'm referring to. Uh, that article had sort of, uh, it was, there were alternate realities within the article itself. But, the, but inserting those two comments from you, it just didn't ring, uh, uh, forgive me, Washington Post, but it didn't ring true. What is the truth? Well, so as it pertains to that particular comment, that's an interesting one, too. So, and again, anybody is welcome to watch my video with their own eyes and make their own judgment and their own decision. I'm standing there at the top of the stairs where there are hundreds of people. And at various points, the, uh, it became, I, I don't know if I would say dangerous, but you know, for, I think for anybody who's ever gone to a, a, a concert or a, a festival or something where there's lots of people kind of shoulder to shoulder, if one person in the crowd pushes one way, the whole crowd is going to sway to the left and the whole crowd is going to sway to the right. And that was kind of happening a little bit uh, at one point. And there's a girl in my video who makes a decision that she wants to leave the cap. She wants to walk away from the Capitol. She didn't go in the Capitol, but she's standing there in this crowd and she wants to go back out to the outer grounds and she's shoving. She's just shoving into people to try to get out. So, and it was, people were starting to kind of lose their footing. So I sort of arched my shoulder back and I tried to create an opening for her. And I, when I did that, I, I pointed and I said, go, go. And you see her in the video respond to me. She says, she says something like, relax, relax. I'm going, I'm going something like that. I mean, we're clearly <laughs> having a conversation, but what they did is they took those words that I said and assigned their own meaning uh -huh. to them and completely removed the context of that. And they did this several times. What I told you uh, a moment ago about the man standing there saying they've opened the doors, they're letting us in, we're going in, we're going in. I clearly am just repeating what that man says as I'm shooting the video, as I'm shooting the video. And, uh, but the, uh, the, the DOJ just isolated the words that I'm saying and said, he's shouting, we're going in, we're going in, as if it was my idea. Yeah, it, it, this is, you know, I, I've been talking about this, uh, you know, from the inception, but it, it is dispiriting, uh, no matter how heroic the tale, and yours is heroic uh, because of the way in which you have handled yourself throughout, uh, in my judgment. Uh, but to see that the police and the prosecutors and the judges not all of them, but most of the judges certainly have been so craven and so politically uh, and ideologically corrupt that they would exploit this moment for their for their purpose, uh, their political purpose, is is something that not even I, who uh, am a, a skeptic of government in all ways, uh, and always have been. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was shocked. I remain shocked at the, at the, the, the way in which it's pervasive in Washington, DC, this, this bias, this uh, purpose, uh, this motivation that is leftist, it's Marxist, it's destructive. Uh, it, it has, it had to be gut wrenching you from that very moment forward. It, it, it has been gut wrenching and it's, not only has this been extremely destructive to my life, and we haven't even gotten into what they did yet, <laughs> but right. I, I will say that it's, uh, it's also, it's dangerous. I mean, it's very, very dangerous because they're, of course, they will never admit this and they will never, they will never see it, but their base is, I, I mean, look what's happening right now with these abortion protests. Look what's happening and, and look how quickly it escalates. Look what happened with Black Lives Matter. It takes so little for the left to activate their base and for their base to become unhinged and crazy. A and mob. They're a total mob. And, and, a, and, and a mob that doesn't seem to ever have to face any consequences 
and, and feels more and more emboldened, I think, each time to do whatever they want if they feel upset. And they have been spoon-feeding them now for a year and a half this story about insurrection and sedition and terrorism. And they have connected me to that story as though I were somehow a, a, a total equal participant in this act of domestic terrorism. When, I mean, I was... I, <laughs> For the love of God, I mean, I didn't even I, put, I didn't put my hands on anybody. I didn't uh, steal anything. I didn't break anything. I stood outside the building with a camera in my hand for eight minutes. But every day of my life now, I am attacked uh, constantly on social media or elsewhere by people screaming that I'm a traitor to my country, that I'm an insurrectionist, that I should be I should be executed. I should be spending the rest of my life in prison. And, and if you Google my name, uh, it's devastating. I mean, there is, you wouldn't even know that I created the walkaway movement or the walk. It's gone. I mean, there's, you can't find a story. It is just 25 pages of MAGA insurrectionists, domestic terrorists over what ultimately ended up being a misdemeanor for disorderly conduct. Right. But I, we should talk about that too. Because, I mean, for, for what did end up being a, a misdemeanor for disorderly conduct, you know, it began with an FBI raid in my apartment on January 25th. The FBI, uh, a, a team in tactical gear, coming into my apartment, putting me in handcuffs, and presenting me with a search warrant to take my property. And, uh, you know, a team of agents is taking my computer, my phone, my iPad, my electronics, my hard drives, my camera, my clothing. Had you had any contact with the FBI or anybody else between this, no. the 6th of January and that moment? No, none. This is how it began. This is how it began. Yeah. And, you know, there was always, this is what is, uh, I think, so maddening is with my case, they had researched who I was. They knew that I had a, a high public profile. They knew that I had done you know, numerous appearances on, on conservative cable news and uh, was pretty well known for people who follow politics. And I think that that was enough for them. And, and another thing that's unusual, unusual about my case is that I was actually never indicted. So with, with, with me, this was all between one FBI agent and a judge. The FBI agent obtained a copy of my video, even though I had taken it down, Multiple people on Twitter who, you know, left-wing activists who, who hate me had copied the video. They had sent it to the FBI. The FBI watched the, my video and uh, decided to go to a judge and, uh, and request an emergency order to have me arrested based off of this video. The judge granted them that, and through that, I was... I was arrested on a complaint and that is what, why the FBI then had permission to, they got an emergency order to, for the search warrant and to be able to arrest me. And they came that day and they arrested me and they took me to jail. I spent days in jail uh, awaiting my ability to see a judge to, uh, to request release. How long were you in jail? About, about two and a half days. Good grief. Well, I just want to say to, to the audience, there's something called swatting, which has become uh, a nuisance. It seems to have ebbed, which uh, people call up uh, the police departments and, and create phony incidents and uh, attack people that they don't like. You were literally swatted. That, that's extraordinary. And, and this is something, too, that I, and I'm sure you're aware of this now, but left wing groups of all kinds. We're spending extraordinary hours and energy and money going through the entire web to to find any video, any way to uh, be able to say to the authorities, uh, saw something and I'm saying something and here's your target. Uh, and they did that with, I, I suspect, hundreds of people. The FBI wasn't even involved. They were just order takers from these left wing groups. Uh, was that your experience? Do you know who did it? I don't know exactly who did it. I know that when the FBI arrested me, they put out an eight page 
essentially press release. And in that eight page press release, they said that I had been turned in by a family member. And they also said that they received, I, I think they said either hundreds or thousands of, uh, of tips from people on Twitter. So, you know, I have, uh, at the time I had almost 700,000 Twitter followers. Uh, of course there was a huge conservative purge right after January 6th. Right. Uh, so now I'm, I, I lost like 200,000 followers in a, a matter of days, but at the time I had about 700,000 followers and they, some of these people obviously hate me and they would just keep tagging the FBI for weeks and saying he was there, he was there, he was there. We have a video, we have a video. And, uh, so the FBI said that I was turned in by a family member and I, that they had also received hundreds or thousands of tips that I was there outside of the Capitol. So tell us, this is about six in the morning when the SWAT team breaks into your apartment. Did they not? Yeah, it was very, it was, yeah, yes, they did. So it was very early. Um, I, I woke up that morning early that morning to the sound of knocking. And my first thought was that, uh, it was like the, I, I live in an apartment. So I thought it was the, like the building maintenance guy or something. I was like, why is he here so early? And all of a sudden, as I'm having that thought, the knock changed to boom, 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 boom. And at that moment, I, I immediately knew what was going on. I, I was like, Oh my God, they actually, I can't believe this because I, you know, we'd been reading for weeks in the news that people were being raided. They were being dragged outside their houses. They were being abducted and taken to Washington, D.C. And that's what I thought was going to happen to me. I thought that they were going to extradite me to D.C. and I would be sitting in a, a prison for God knows how long. And uh, But they took me to the local county jail, um, which is pretty harrowing where I live. Um, and I was in the jail for about two and a half days before I was finally released. And when I was released, that's when I began to gain an understanding of my charges. So if you can believe it, they, they charged me with two felonies and a misdemeanor. And the, the, the first felony was knowingly, knowingly occupying restricted grounds. Now, remember, I'm, I'm standing among thousands of people with no police officers and no barricades anywhere, but I knowingly occupying restricted grounds. Uh, disorderly conduct with an intent to disrupt a hearing before Congress. That was a misdemeanor and uh, a felony of impeding an officer in the line of duty. And when they told me that, I thought, I said, what is this? What are they talking about? And my attorney said, in your video that you shot, there's a moment where one officer comes to the doorway of the Capitol. Now, remember, this is happening about 35 feet in front of me, and I've got my camera completely above my head, pointed down toward the door. He said, in the video, you can see a moment where a Capitol police officer comes to the door frame, and when he gets there, somebody, somebody nearby grabs his shield out of his hand. And when they grab his shield out of his hand, several people in the crowd start chanting, take it, take it, take his shield, take his shield. And they said, well, the FBI is saying that you are one of the people on the video that they hear chanting, take the shield, take the shield. So they're charging you with a felony of impeding an officer because they're saying that that is your voice that they hear. And, was and it? Um, <laughs> well, all I can tell you at this point was that as we worked through the an entire year of this case and working uh, out a plea deal with the prosecution, I can tell you this. I vehemently from the beginning denied having knowledge of that or being involved in that in any way, shape or form. But the department of justice said that they were unwilling to drop that accusation against me. They were willing to drop the charge but not the accusation. So in order to get this plea deal where they dropped the felonies and only charged me with a misdemeanor, it included signing a statement of offense that they wrote 
in which they said I did that. So they, according to the statement of offense by the Department of Justice, I walked onto the Capitol grounds knowing they were restricted, knowing I wasn't allowed to be there. When I got there, I saw a crowd of people struggling with police officers. I shouted, go, go, to encourage the crowd to go inside the Capitol. And then I witnessed with my own eyes a police officer having his shield ripped away from him. And I started screaming, take his shield, take his shield to encourage the crowd to take the shield from the officer. That is the statement that I signed. And uh, just to, to drive it home for you, um, that's, their, that's their story. That's their version of events. And I guess I would just like anybody listening to just for a moment, maybe employ an ounce of common sense and ask themselves, does it really make sense that I would film myself doing those things and then intentionally go back to my hotel room and upload that video to social media for my conservative audience, my pro-law enforcement audience, my pro-law and order audience to watch me doing those things? I guess I just, I would ask the question, why would I do that? But nonetheless, uh, in order to secure this plea deal and not go to trial, that is the statement that I signed. Would you would you change your mind about that plea deal if you uh, that plea deal if you had it to do over? That's a question that I struggle with every single day, and I think that I will struggle with that for many years to come. Uh, here's what I can tell you: the situation, and this is hard, I think, for people to understand, and I and I get that, but. The, the question here was never, how do I win or how do I lose? It was, how do I lose the least? This was an unwinnable situation. There was no winning. And so my question was simply, do I spend money that I don't have to go to trial and fight this, knowing that I'm going to be sitting before a liberal judge and jury who are probably going to find me guilty just because they can, because they hate Donald Trump and they hate anybody who supports him? Or do I just take this horrible deal that's been offered to me and take ownership of things that are, are, are soul crushing to take ownership of so that I can move on with my life? And that's the decision that I made. Now, recently, there was one January 6th defendant who opted to have a bench trial and was lucky enough to have a judge who looked at this and said, uh, the evidence to me shows that he did not know he was trespassing and that there were police officers waving him inside. And so he dropped all the charges against this defendant. Now that's only happened one time. Everyone else who's chosen to go to trial has been you, found guilty on all charges. You're describing the first, the first uh, trial. Uh, of uh, that resulted in that plea uh, resulted in that uh, instance. It was Judge Sullivan who's had something of a checkered career, but he actually took the trouble to go back and look at the Justice Department charges uh, uh, in various things, whether it was Antifa, whatever, and look. You're talking about at the outset the overcharges uh, here by the Justice Department. The judge had the energy and the interest and the sense of responsibility himself to go back and take a look at what the Justice Department had done uh, with left leftist activists. I'll put it that way, and found that the charges were three and four times that of anything that the Justice Department brought against the left uh, the leftist activist, uh, considering everyone uh, at the at the rally, right-wing activists. Uh, it's not exactly a, a comparison. Antifa, uh, Black Lives Matter, and of course, the Trump rally. But at least he did it, and that's the reason that that judge, uh, it resulted in an acquittal. Uh, and uh, your judge doesn't sound like he was in any mood. How would you describe, <laughs> how would you describe his, uh, his, uh, his state of mind? I, I think that your assessment is right on target. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, so my judge, uh, in my case, uh, I would describe, and I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say her name or, or get into any of that, but, sure. um, uh, in my opinion, there was, um, a, a marked difference between the way that she interacted with the prosecution 
and the way that she interacted with my attorneys. And uh, I, I felt from the onset, I knew before sentencing that I was in trouble. I, 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 there, we, we had sort of a, a preliminary hearing about a few different matters uh, three days before my sentencing. And I spent the next three days going, I am in big trouble, big trouble, because uh, there was a, what I would describe as a hostility toward me, toward my attorneys. And um, it was very clear to me that the writing was on the wall. And when we actually got to my sentencing hearing three days later, uh, it, it was very clear that that she, at the very least, was on board entirely with the prosecution and the DOJ's version of what had happened that day and why. And what what really kind of shocked me was that she did watch my video, and I I, I honestly believed that that would be my saving grace. I thought to myself, you know, and my video is not perfect. And by the way, I'm. I'm pleading guilty to a misdemeanor of disorderly conduct. Now, most people on my side of the fence, I mean, including incredibly intelligent minds and sophisticated people have said that they don't even understand how my, my personal behavior could be construed as disorderly. Nonetheless, I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I have to take a disorderly conduct charge because I was there, because I was on the steps and the doors are open and some people are going inside, uh, to me, it, that's not the most, the biggest injustice on the face of the earth. And I guess I can handle that. Um, but unfortunately, when she watched my video, it, it's, it, it's like, it's as if she was watching something entirely different than what I felt like I'm watching when I look at it. And to her, uh, it seemed that this was very, very egregious. And she felt that my behavior was very egregious. And um, she, had, she made several comments about how she wished she could punish me more harshly than what the sentencing recommendations would allow. And in my opinion, the, the sentence that I received is pretty extreme for a class B misdemeanor for somebody with no criminal record. Tell everybody what your, your sentence was and is. Okay. So, well, first of all, please bear in mind that by the time I got to sentencing, which was on January 24th of 2022, it had been an entire year since the FBI raided my house and took me to jail. So on this, misdemeanor, this class B disorderly conduct misdemeanor charge. I've already spent two and a half days in jail. I've spent an entire year on pretrial supervision, government supervision. So that's already happened. Now I'm being sentenced to three months of, of house arrest with an ankle monitor. I'm not allowed to leave my home for three months, three years of probation, 60 hours of community service, the DOJ actually did not even request a fine, but the judge said that she was sentencing me to the maximum fine of $5,000 uh, just because she felt I deserved it. And, uh, and I was ordered to pay restitution to the capital of $500, although it was acknowledged that I didn't uh, do any destruction or vandalism or, or harm to the capital in any way. And, uh, and in addition, she, I was also ordered, uh, court ordered mental health services and, uh, and, uh, oh, and the government requested that as a condition of my probation that I be, uh, required or, or excuse me, the government requested as a condition of my probation that they have the right to surveil my phone, my computer, my bank accounts, my email accounts and my social media accounts for three years while I'm on probation. But the judge actually did not grant them that. That was the one thing they didn't get. Well, thank you. Know, thanks to the judge. Brandon, do you have any objection if I find out who your judge was? Because this is a judge and we're, we're going to speak, uh, we're, we're going to speak forthrightly and I won't use names or anything else without your, uh, without your approval. Uh, but I really think I would like to know, I'll put it that way, 
who this judge was, and I think our audience should know who this judge was, because speaking of egregious behavior, in my judgment, no pun intended, uh, hers was egregious. Uh, and, and I think the, the public needs to know who such people are, who appointed them, and what their record is. Uh, give us a, you know, you don't have to answer me now, but if you would think about that, I would certainly like to provide that to the to the public. I think there's a a real need to know. Well, this is, you know, this is public record because mm-hmm. every, everything, every, every moment of every one of these January six cases is being mass reported by the left wing media. Uh, so it's, it wouldn't be hard for anybody to find if uh, they did a, a, an online search. Uh, but what I will say is that, uh, <laughs> So I'm on probation for three years, and yet another unusual aspect of my case is that, uh, so I reside right now in the state of Nebraska, and what typically happens, you know, particularly with a a misdemeanor case, what's considered to be a petty offense by the court, uh, the federal jurisdiction, which is, say, Washington, D.C., doesn't usually have interest in hanging on to these cases. So they would they would normally transfer jurisdiction to the state that you live in to get rid of, you know, to, to take this off their caseload and say, if, if, if any time in this three years, God forbid, I violated probation or I broke the law, I would end up before a judge in Nebraska, the state where I live and the state where I'm on probation. But with these January 6th cases, these judges are holding on to these cases. And so my judge said during my sentencing that she intends to maintain jurisdiction of my case. So if I so much as jaywalk in the next three years, I'm going back before that judge again. So I just want people to be, nobody do anything stupid. Nobody, I I don't want anybody reaching out to her. I don't want anybody doing anything crazy like that. But, um, no, this audience, this isn't, let me guarantee you, this is, (laughs) (laughs) this is, this audience, uh, is, is law and order. Uh, our audience is civil. They are bright. They are patriots. And, uh, and frankly, your judge is not, uh, a a patriot to treat a citizen, a fellow citizen that way. Uh, and uh, the, you know, the name of the judge is already out in the public. Uh, as you know, uh, but uh, but I acquiesce to what you're saying because I don't in any way want to create any uh, friction for you or any problem. Uh, so we will right. let the, we will uh, table that, and uh, I withdraw the request entirely. Uh, fair deal. Fair deal. Yeah. All right. Let's let's uh, continue uh, with your story here just a bit, if if you can. Uh, tell us what the most outrageous part, most shocking take has been from this experience. I, I mean, I don't know if you could possibly sort through which would be the most. Uh, it, it is such a, you know, and I've heard a lot of these stories. Uh, they're all terrible. I, I will tell you, there are stories, as you well know, uh, people who who remain in jail now more than a year afterwards without any habeas corpus without uh, any production of charges. Uh, It's outrageous. Uh, And and I will tell you, and I think you know, uh, you are in many ways, although you have been offended in in, in the worst ways by our our courts, our prosecutors uh, and investigators, um, there are some some stories that are just uh, sickening from, from one moment to the next, only they last for more than a year. Uh, it, it's hard to believe this is American justice, isn't it? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's truly unbelievable. And, I, you know, this is another thing that we tried to impress upon my judge at the time of sentencing was the, the disparity in the, the way that, first of all, my case had been handled, the things that I had already gone through. Again, it's, I, I think it's, you almost become brainwashed after a while by the way that the media keeps pounding away at this and pounding away at this. There are days I have to remind myself that I'm like, you know, you didn't really do anything. You didn't really hurt anybody. 
You didn't touch anybody. You didn't go there with an intention of hurting anybody or doing anything. But the way that my life has been in so many ways damaged and, and, and aspects of my life shattered over this. I mean, first of all, within the first 30 days of me being arrested and taken to jail, it was just, it was unbelievable. Bear in mind, I'm already facing enormous trauma and, and PTSD for, I mean, having your home FBI raided and taken to and sitting in jail and sitting there in an orange jumpsuit and then going before a judge who tells you it's the case of the United States of America versus Brandon Strzok. And then you get out of jail and it was just like, boom, boom, boom. Within, within three days of getting out of jail, I got a notice on my door of my apartment telling me that I was being kicked out of the building because this was all over the news. And I was on a month to monthly because I lived in the building for so long. I was now on a month to month basis. Well, they're saying, well, we're not renewing you next month or going forward. You have 30 days to vacate. And then I, uh, I had, so I have two organizations, the Walkaway Foundation and the Walkaway Campaign PAC, political PAC. So the, uh, the fundraising portals that we use online for these organizations banned us. So we lost our ability to fundraise. Then all of my email services that I used to, be, to email all of my subscribers and my followers, I was banned from those. So I lost my ability to contact any of my donors or my subscribers or any, could not communicate with them. Who, uh, when my, you say you were banned, who banned you? Okay, so the, for our foundation, we were using a, a fundraising portal called Classy. And for the PAC, we were using a fundraising portal called Antidote. Uh, and both of those uh, canceled us. For the emailing, I was using uh, uh, MailChimp. And then I actually switched after I got banned. I switched from MailChimp to a service called Constant Contact for emailing. And then they banned me after that. Uh, so do I you think they were contacted by the FBI or some other agency? No, I don't know that they were contacted by the FBI, but I think that it was just the, the media. It was, I think it was a combination of uh, left-wing activists who were, like you said, I mean, these people spend all day long digging into your business, and then they'll find out who you're doing business with, and they'll start calling them and calling them and saying, you know, do you know that an insurrectionist is raising money using your platform, you know, and, and they'll threaten to go to the media with it. Mm -hmm. And most of these companies will just cave because they don't want that type of uh, bad publicity. So the and, effect <laughs> of this plea agreement was that this judge basically took away, not only, I, I mean, made you gave you the least harmful uh, result, I guess, uh, in the plea deal, the, the least of, uh, of uh, injury to you. Uh, but at the same time, denied you your First Amendment rights, denied you uh, your opportunity to be politically active. You were nullified, in point of fact, by the left wing, Justice Department and prosecutors and FBI. Yes, but I, to be clear, that was not the judge who did that. Not the judge who the judge had no responsibility about whether these companies banned me or not. That was a that no, was no, a no, no, no. What I mean by that, yeah, Brendan, what I mean by that is insisting upon this harsh plea deal and, and carrying it out. The result was far more than what was contained in that plea deal. Uh, there were oh, uh, effects that went and consequences went far beyond that. Far beyond that. Far beyond that, uh, the, the, you know, one of the worst things was, um, you know, I for for years I travel constantly doing the work that I do with Walkaway, and it's not unusual for me to be on an airplane every week, sometimes three to five times in one week. And so many years I've had TSA pre-check, and you never had a problem with that. I've never had a criminal record. I've never had any problems. But suddenly I got a letter in the mail from the government saying I was no longer uh, that my TSA pre-check was canceled and that I was no longer considered a low risk traveler. And then when I went to take my first business trip, which was a week or two after that, 
that's when I discovered that they had put me on a terrorism watch list with TSA. So I now have a status which is called Quad S or SSSS, which means I am allowed to fly. I'm not on a no-fly list, but I'm on the highest level terrorism list you can be on and still be allowed to fly. So when I go to the airport, it takes about two to three hours now to be able to get on an airplane because when I'm going through security, they, they cordon off a security lane just for me. And they have a team of about eight or nine TSA agents come over and they, uh, they take pictures of my boarding passes. They take pictures of my ID. They take every single item out of my bag and swab it and test it in a machine that tests for explosive materials. Uh, they do full body pat downs, which include putting their hands down my pants uh, and you know, groping every inch of my body. Uh, I have to go through the metal detectors and the scanners multiple times. The process takes several hours. And then when that's finished, when I'm finally cleared to go to my gate, they have a team of agents follow me around the airport everywhere I go. Sometimes they have dogs. And if I sit down at my gate to wait for my, my flight to start boarding, they'll have agents stationed all around me there at the gate. And when they finally start boarding the flight, they bring a special machine to the gate and they give me another full body pat down again at the gate. And they once again, take my bag and swab and test every item inside of my bag at the gate. And then they swab my hands and my feet. And they do this in front of all of the other passengers who are watching and thinking that they're getting on a plane with the Unabomber. And this is every time I travel now. And if there's a connecting flight, they do it at the connecting gate again. This is over a misdemeanor. <laughs> a plea a non-violent deal. misdemeanor charge. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I want to say to you, Brandon, I, I thank you for sharing this, this awful story uh, with this audience. America needs to know what this is. Uh, we talk on this, on this podcast almost daily about a, a, an administration that is Marxist left posing as Democrat, uh, a, a, an administration that is authoritarian to the point of being totalitarian. Uh, and this is for the Republican Party and certainly independents. This is no contest between the left and the right. This is no contest between Republicans and Democrats. This is a contest uh, for control of this country. Uh, and this, this administration, these, this Democratic Party, uh, means to take control uh, of the entire country. Uh, there is no room in this country uh, for our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, the respect for one another as citizens, uh, because the left intends quite a different outcome. Uh, right. What we always give our guests, and I want to say this, we're going to put your uh, uh, all of your uh, information on how to get to uh, your video, uh, to your social media, uh, so that everyone can have a direct link to you. Uh, and that'll be there till further notice. I'll put it that way. Uh, and uh, you, now uh, our pleasure. And uh, again, my, uh, my profound respect for the way in which you have handled yourself uh, throughout. I know, uh, I know that this has had to be difficult uh, even after the experience because of the temptation, uh, I'm sure to, to set things right uh, rhetorically or, or through your actions. And so I, I just yes. I applaud you. Uh, Thank you. I, I, we have a custom here. We always give our guests the last word and we've reached that point. Uh, you have the last word as you wish. Well, thank you. I guess the last word that I would say here is that despite how harrowing I think my story and my experience has been, I want people ultimately to know that my when I look into the future, I see something that is very bright and very hopeful. And what I want people to take away from my story more than just being uh, shocked or horrified or scared or afraid is I want people to see that I went through this, I survived it, and I'm moving on. And I'm going to continue to do the work that I do. And I think this is an important lesson for conservatives because we allow ourselves as conservatives to be uh, I think suspended uh, by fear 
And I don't want people to be afraid. I want people to see that you can have your life annihilated the way that I did. And you still keep going on. And with that, my organization, Walk Away, uh, we're throwing our first live event in Beverly Hills on May 21st. For anybody listening, if you're in the California area, please, or even if you're not in the California area, please go to walkawaycampaign.com, click events, and take a look. Just come out, be a part of it. It is going to be a beautiful, joyful celebration of freedom, of optimism for our future. Looking forward, walkawaycampaign.com. Please be there. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that if anybody wants to help assist in any way with my legal defense fund, they, or if they want to watch my video that I've been describing, they can go to my website, which is brandonstrock.com. And my last name is spelled S-T-R-A-K-A. There's that peculiar extra A at the end of my name, which confuses people, brandonstrock.com. And that's it. Thanks, Lou. Brandon's website is a little tricky. It's brandonstrock.com, but his last name has a silent A at the end of it. It's brandon, S-T-R-A-K-A.com. And his organization is walkawaycampaign.com. His is a story of real strength in the face of overwhelming government power and Marxist left dim ideologues intent on waging an assault on the American right and citizens with whom they have a political argument. It truly is a battle for the country. Tomorrow, we'll be talking with Jack Posobiec, conservative social media star and great American. Please be with us here tomorrow for the Great America Show. Till then, thanks for joining us. God bless you, and God bless America.